<laughs> Welcome to On the Bench. This is Brendan Sinone, and we are going to have our worst guest ever from the Meet the Beat series. This is one you guys are going to hate. I hate it already because he's been really mean to me in pre-recording. Safed Dean. I can't say where he works now, but he did cover FSU from 2014 to 2018 for both the Tallahassee Democrat and the Orlando Sentinel. I have Josh Newberg with me as well to help keep this interview on the rails, but I'm very skeptical right now. They're gaining up on me. Fellas, welcome to On the Bench. How's it going? Was that my cue, Brendan? Because you were talking to two people at the same time here. I said fellas, and Josh is muted too, and I can't hear Josh. I'm not muted. I'm not muted. I just think that as a host, you don't throw it to two people who are not sitting in the same room as each other and hope that they figure out who's going to talk first. So, yeah, they're, they're... Safed, welcome to the On the Bench podcast. I'm glad you're here. How you doing, man? New, thank you for the welcome, man. I really appreciate Brendan uh, having me on. Uh, nice to say hello to the old FSU fans uh, who may still have me Bam. blocked or muted on Twitter, but it's all good. It's all good. Hello, everybody. I thought it was a fine introduction. You both could have just said, hey, Brendan, at the same time, and that would have been it. Anyways, let's not dwell on it. Let's <laughs> get into into this. Soffit is going to be, I would say, polarizing. Uh, we had Tashawn Reed on before, and I thought that was going to be polarizing. But I don't even know, man. Like, I think people, Soffit, do you think anyone's going to enjoy listening to you on this? I, I hope some people do. But what are your expectations as you uh, as you set out on being a guest on our On the Bench Meet the Beat series? I don't know. I think the first time went pretty well, if you ask me, but I'm I'm pretty sure <laughs> it went a little different for some of the listeners there. But I'll, I'll keep it contained. I'll keep it nice for you, for you guys. You know, I'm um, I came on the beat at a, at a real interesting time. It was after uh, after the title, after the 13 title. So it was the 2014 season. I actually came on like mid season. Um, the FSU Miami game at Hard Rock Stadium was my first game on the FSU beat. Um, so that was, you know, uh, during a string of comeback victories for FSU that season. Um, that was Dalvin Cook's first game against Miami. Um, so Jameson Dalvin Cook led that comeback. And I think that was probably 22 because it was a 27 game win streak that season um, that eventually ended against Oregon. But uh, I think that was game 22, and you could just see that, you know, the team was, um, you know, feeling the pressure, man, feeling the pressure to repeat. And uh, with that comes a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, you, you don't really get to enjoy it as you enjoy a run to a title like they did in 2013. Um, so it was definitely an interesting time for me to start covering the team. Yeah, the fan base was up in arms because there was all the off-field stuff in addition to one close game after another close game after another. So it was a stressful time to be covering the team, and you just parachute into it. And I remember, Safed, I, I wasn't I wasn't totally sure about you. Now we're, we're buddies. We talk on the phone once a week, probably. Uh, you were at my wedding. Like, I consider you a very good friend. Uh, and I wasn't sure about you until I remember when it, I'm like, oh, we're Explain friends. why you weren't sure about him. I'd like to hear more on that. Yeah, Brennan. Yeah, Brennan. Please explain. He makes a lot of weird jokes, and I make weird jokes too, but they weren't my style. And his Twitter game was really awkward, more so than mine. Like, I wasn't sure if he was trolling or not. It's probably why a lot of FSU fans were skeptical of him. They didn't really get his sense of humor. Salvin's a strange bird. Uh, but, but in that, I realized our uh, sensibilities were kind of at least somewhat aligned when we were – 
covering the 2015 Rose Bowl. So been at the end of Soffit's first season, what like game seven or so of you covering FSU and one, you come downstairs after the night of like a night of, I don't know, want to say debauchery, but you were hungover and you missed, oh, yeah. you were, you missed the bus to get us from, uh, from our hotel to the Rose Bowl. So right then it's like, that's my kind of guy right there. He's living life a little dangerously, uh, partying a little bit. So I enjoyed that. But then we're up in the press box and FSU starting to get blown out. And the fan base is getting more and more mad. And they're like just yelling at all the players via Twitter. And someone called Bobby Hart, Bobby Fart. And Soffit started giggling. And that's when I realized we were going to become friends. Why do you have to pull up receipts of my night before the Rose Bowl game, bro? That's, that's, it's cute that we became friends over that. Yeah, yeah, all that hearty, hearty stuff. But damn, you have to pull up all the receipts like that? I was so hung over <laughs> for that Rose Bowl game. <laughs> so you guys have to remember that Rose Bowl game in LA was New Year's Eve. The Rose Bowl was played on New Year's Day. Like of any day to go out and enjoy Los Angeles, it's got to be New Year's Eve, right, New? Of no course, I, I I I ended up going to this man. This is how many years ago? Five years ago? Okay, so I ended up going to downtown LA. Was bar hopping a little bit and ended up finding a speakeasy. Um, in like a basement of this establishment in Los Angeles. And I remember just going down a, a weird like little hallway, um, going downstairs into a, into a, a party. And it was like the roaring twenties in there, dude. Like every woman in there was dressed like to her best. Like it was I the roaring twenties was down there. All the dudes. <laughs> I didn't see anybody. I really the, thought the, the party was so, I was like, the party there. <laughs> the party was so dark that like you couldn't really see anybody in there. It was just like, you know, different spots of lights, everybody wearing their best for New Year's Eve and just a huge bar with bartenders shaking up every single drink that they could. And, um, yeah, the ride over to the Rose bowl that morning was rough because it didn't matter how many alarms I set. I was still kind of like an hour behind everybody else. Like I got breakfast before, after all the other media members, I didn't jump on the media bus. You were an hour behind. I got breakfast. I got breakfast. Everybody got breakfast, and I wasn't even ready yet. So I had to go back to my room, get ready. Then I got an Uber all the way from our hotel in downtown Los Angeles all the way to Pasadena. (laughs) And I just told the Uber driver, yo, man, I don't care how much this ride is, just be quiet the whole ride. How much was it? (laughs) How much was it? It's not a close, that's not a close trip. Oh, it, it, it had to be like a $60 Uber. $60 Uber. It had to be a $60 Uber, but that ride was worth it. (laughs) To paint the picture, Josh, it it better have been. Uh, Safed comes downstairs. The line of reporters are basically getting a shuttle from the hotel to the the stadium. And everyone's dressed up really nice. Everyone's suited up because it's the, you know, it's a chip or playoff game. And the line is so long to get on the shuttle that it goes inside the hotel into like where the the breakfast bar is. And everyone's all dressed up. And there comes Safid, like in his night before wear still, like just struggling, slowly walking to the breakfast bar while everyone else is ready to like start journeying in. So, yeah, you were more than an hour behind everyone, dude. But you made it. And I think that's a, like symbolic of your time covering FSU. Uh, because your voice as a writer, as a professional reporter, like it all got so much better as your career like progressed. And I think people were hard on you early on, man, because you were still kind of feeling things out. You never covered a beat before. You had been doing desk work primarily before and covered some recruiting. 
Uh, so you kind of found your voice. And I say all this, I'm buttering you up. What was your favorite story that you wrote during your time covering FSU? I know what mine was of yours, but I, but I really want to hear yours. I had a couple of them, man. I really did have a couple of them. Very um, humble. I think one of my one of my favorite <laughs> stories, I had a couple favorite stories of mine that I wrote. Um, but I think one of mine's on my way out of the beat at the end, you know, before the 2018 season was on Nooney Murray. Um, you know, his senior year, his relationship with his grandma. Um, that had to be one of my favorite stories. Um, I really liked covering DeAndre Francois um, and his did, did uh, whole bout with, with, with the Tallahassee Police Department and how the police department was, you know, scooping out his garbage and checking his garbage out because somebody snitched on him um, for supposedly, reportedly, purportedly, allegedly um, selling marijuana out of his apartment. Um, I really enjoyed covering Dalvin Cook too, man. Dalvin Cook before the draft um, was probably another one of my favorite stories. And um, I had a few of them, man. I really enjoyed covering the team. I think that was one thing I really wanted to put out in my reporting was, you know, I know all the fans know I went to the University of Florida. And I know, um, you know, I know I was probably not the easiest person to follow on Twitter if you're an FSU fan. Um but I also wanted people to know that my reporting was kind of what it was. I, I let it, I let it speak for itself. You know, I, I didn't put all the tomfoolery I like to, to put on social media in, and, and, and the articles that I wrote. And, um, I hope people really got, um, some enjoyment from the things that I wrote more than, um, more than, more than the disdain that they had for me on social media. That's for sure. It's funny you should mention that. First, I'm going to say that my favorite story, I'm continuing the butter up, Soffit, because it's going to go in a not-so-great direction after this, I promise. Uh, the story you did on Trey Fisher I thought was really cool and outside the box. I remember when you wrote it, and basically for our listeners who didn't read it, it was a story on Trey Fisher being a high school quarterback. That's Jimbo's son. What it's like being Jimbo's son in Tallahassee, playing the same position as dad, the pressures that come with that. And I remember at first I was like, man, why are you writing that like before the start of the season? It just felt like weird timing to me. But this is, again, what makes Safid unique and, and special is he's thinking outside the box and doing something that's different that no one else on the beat was doing. Uh, a story that ended up being really, really, uh, really well written and well reported story. Uh, and then also, like, I think made you and Jimbo's relationship turn at least a little bit. Uh at the very least, it, it told an interesting story. So I wanted to give you props for that. And we could talk about that in a little bit if you'd like, but I'm going to read some comments from the last time you joined our podcast, and I'll pass it off to Newberg to ask you some questions. Josh, do you remember this when Safa joined the, the podcast, the one time? Yeah, it was kind of before we were really devoted to the pod. And um well, well, speak for your speak for yourself. Well, I mean, we, I st- I, we're it, dabbling. It, you know what I mean. It was, really it was an it hour. Yet. It was an hour and a half long episode that I had probably fifteen interviews set up simultaneously. So one of us was very devoted to the podcast, Joshua. Yeah, good yes. point. Okay, but yes, you do remember that there was a stream of it was a parade of beat writers, and Safed had left for a different publication at that point. Uh, so he was no longer covering the FSU beat. And I asked Safed to come on for like a minute and basically just to provide a little of his old fashioned trolling. And like it worked. And it was such an obvious troll, too. Uh, here's some of the comments Rebel Knoll one, Safedine sucks. That was the first comment actually on, this, on the podcast. <laughs> Hi, Noel. What you think? Hi, Noel. You know, you guys be buddies. Agreed. Agreed, he says. Upward Noel. 
great pod, guys, and a great idea to survey so many personalities, excluding the inclusion of Safadine. I hope to never hear him again. <laughs> Chandler, <laughs> Chandler Underwood 601. Sorry, sorry, hi, sorry, sorry, I know I'm back. <laughs> is Safadine a Gator fan? He sounds like every ignorant Gator fan I've ever met. He used to think he was decent when he was Thanks. covering us, but apparently he was just waiting to hate us. That's it. They hate us because they ain't us. That's what that comment just read just now. Yeah. Uh, Safid, what up? Um, I was thinking, you know, you were coming on the show and there was a couple people during your time on the beat that I could relate to. One of them was Tom D'Angelo, who we just had on uh, two weeks ago on the Meet the Beat series. And I relate to you because you break news. You know, you were in the you were in the mix when it came to breaking news. You weren't afraid to you know stick your toe in the water there. Uh, you mixed it up with people on Twitter, which is always fun. I can I can definitely relate to that. And you were kind of well. I talk about some of the roles that all the beat writers have like Jeff Cameron and Tim Linnefelt and Tom D'Angelo and you and me. And I think you and I have something in common. I think we are fire starters. You know, we like to fan the flames of things and get people's emotions going while not necessarily being outlandish with our own takes. We just kind of have a way to stir the pot, if you will. Um, I also noticed during your time there that, and I wish I could have, you know, been on the beat with you for some of these times, but you seem to draw the ire of Jimbo Fisher quite a bit. Do you think during, during, during your time, um, there was anybody that kind of went back and forth more than you and Fisher? Back and forth? I mean, I think, you know, Ira, when he, I mean, not Ira, excuse me, but when he, when he wanted to give it to Ira, when he wanted to give it to Corey, when he wanted to give it to some other people, you know, on the beat, that he definitely did it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Jimbo, I think the one thing that I really appreciated about covering Jimbo Fisher was the fact that I knew that, you know, he read my, my stuff. You know, working, especially working in the Tallahassee Democrat, you know, we're talking about the local paper there where the paper is probably getting delivered right to the university's footsteps. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of coaches and a lot of players, a lot of people like to pretend um, when you're on this side of the media, a lot of players and coaches like to pretend like they don't see anything, like they don't read anything, like they don't pay any attention to it. Mm -hmm. But they do. They all do. Um, you well, know, especially Jim. Yeah, especially Jimbo. You know, one of uh, one of Brendan's favorite stories that I know he wants him to tell on the pod here is, um, you know, one time I wrote about Gabe Neighbors uh, when he committed, and I forgot which which recruiting class that was. I know it's been probably four or five years now, um, but I said, you know, Gabe Neighbors was committed, and um, I had wrote that another website uh, had him as a two star player, and um, Jimbo took offense to that. And I wrote that they had took Gabe Neighbors because they didn't know who else they were going to end up taking um, at the end of that class. Um, and then I think one of those players was who was one that one DN that that didn't qualify. Um, oh, Shavar Manuel. Shavar they, Manuel. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> so your your boy Shavar Manuel, Josh, <laughs> was uh, was was one of the players on that class, and so I guess that class ended up being like a top five, top three class. And Jimbo got the last laugh on that. But when I wrote a, two, a, a story about Gabe neighbors being a two star and they're getting him because they don't know who else they're going to get. 
um, I got a call from Jimbo Fisher around, I forgot what time, nine o'clock in the morning, a couple mm-hmm. days leading up to signing day. And, you know, the time leading up to signing day, the coaches are in every school. Um, they're tense, man. They, they are, you, you don't know what's, you know, you don't know what to, to believe because, you know, as a coach, you're waiting for all these players to sign on the dotted line. And it doesn't matter how many hours leading up to signing day, you're still antsy about who's going to sign, who's sure. going to qualify. And who's going to jump ship? So I wrote the story about Gabe Neighbors, and we had met him during a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And great kid. Um, his mom was a sweetheart. Um, but I wrote that he was a two star, and that the, the uh, you know the Seminoles took him because they didn't know who else was uh, going to commit to the class. And I got a 9 a.m. call from Jumbo, woke me up out of my sleep. Um, a five zero number I didn't recognize. Uh, hello, Safi. This is Coach Jimbo. Why in the hell would you write a story about? And he went on to explain everything I wrote about, about how, you know, he was a two-star. He's like, you don't know how talented this kid is. For all you know, he could be a seven-year NFL vet. How would you know how good he is just because of the rating? And you don't know which players we're going to get on signing day. Why would we tell you anything? Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, Jimbo, okay, we'll, we'll see. I was like, okay, Jimbo, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it all comes out, Jimbo. Um, but for once, it, 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 that was one thing that really let me know that he was reading my stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I brought to Jimbo uh, to, to Brendan recently because I saw Gabe Neighbor sign as an undrafted free <laughs> agent to, to an NFL team <laughs> right after mm-hmm. his college career. So we'll see if, if, if Gabe Neighbors lives up to the seven-year window there that Jimbo was giving him. Um, but that was one, that was one instance. And I remember another instance too. I wrote a column before I believe the 16 season and 15 was the year where, or 14 was the year they should have repeated 15. They got the 10 wins and 16. I was like, all right, you got Francois, you got Patrick, you got all these guys on the team here. And I pretty much wrote a column that said, you know, Jimbo's got one title, but he really needs two for us to really consider him like Nick Saban and Urban Meyer. And the first spring press conference, Jimbo comes up <laughs> and he's like, we're trying to establish a program of dominance or something, something to that effect. And when I heard Jimbo say all that, I was like, all right, cool. I know you definitely read my column now, you know, because no coach wants to feel like, you know, winning is never enough or what they did was never enough. That's something I felt Jimbo always kind of teetled with, with the fans. The Seminoles, they were winning 10 games a season. They were getting to, you know, power, um, you know, uh, New Year's Six Bowl games, and still it was never enough for Seminole fans because you had just won the title in 13 and you, you didn't get back to winning a title yet. So Jimbo really mm-hmm. felt like, you know, even though as much of what he was doing at FSU um, was great, he still felt it was underappreciated. And um, I think that calm led to it, and it, it kind of led to the pressure that led to the 16 year, which was my one of my favorite FSU moments was, um, you know, Jimbo having like, poster boards leading up to the practice complex covered the in yellow, yellow like a little yellow big road mm-hmm. it was probably it was probably the most pitiful thing i've seen covering fsu because it went from a program that won 27 straight games what, what, what year did you to, leave safid <clears throat> i leave right before willie taggart yeah that's why it's the more. most pathetic thing you've seen so there, there's been more <laughs> gone on but yeah so just yeah. from your window you know, let's make that clear of course, I made sure I got out at the right time. 
Uh, that's awesome. I was going to follow up with, I was going to ask you to tell us some good sidebar stories where Jimbo pulled you aside. Those were great. I want to ask you, um, I've been working in this industry for 15 years and all at the college level, mainly covering recruiting, not even working on the beat. What's the biggest difference from working a college beat to working a pro beat? The biggest difference, uh, well, you honestly, it's just the connectivity with the players, you know, um, as you guys would know on, from the recruiting side, you'll get to see a player during camps or, um, during any kind of like seven on seven thing that you'll go and cover and you'll get the player's number and maybe when establish a relationship with a player. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and they're 13 to 17 years old. Right. And you're trying to be ahead of the recruiting curve and trying to get to know in with a player when you know they're going to be a top 10 talent, top 25 mm-hmm. talent, a five-star player, and you want to get the information for everybody else. So you try to establish a relationship with the player and kind of when they become a part of the school and kind of uh, now they're back behind a school's PR team, um, you know, they kind of, the players kind of, you know, they're, they're hidden from you a little bit. It's hard to really use those relationships that you gained before, um, while they're in school, because now sometimes they don't want to talk to you. Sometimes they think they're hot shit now. Um, sometimes they really even believe the hype even more until they see themselves and how they perform in school or how they perform on the field in college. Um, and that changes too. And I think on the pro level too is, is, is just access. You know, you're in the locker room every day talking to these guys. You can go talk to them after a good game. You can go talk to them after a bad game. They appreciate you when you talk about them. You when you talk with them, and there's nothing really to talk about. You're just having conversation too. So that's probably the biggest difference is just access. You know, college teams they definitely want to limit how much you talk to a player, how often you talk to a player. And um, college is really college football is a real sensitive stage for players too because. They're getting to know social media. They're getting to see a whole new side of a fan base where if they miss a catch or they miss a tackle, you know, all of the fans on Twitter are coming after them and, and the players see it. And it's not a great feeling um, when you're in that position. And as a pro, you kind of deal with the same thing too. But um, at least as a reporter from the side of that, you get to have a little bit more time with them in the, on, on the pro side. That's for sure. Hmm. Do you mix it up with the uh, the fans and stuff the same way you did? Or, or Would you consider that you play the same role with the beat that you cover now as you did when you were at Florida oh. State? Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. And I think that's because of how divided college fandoms are versus pro fandoms. You know, Tell me about it. What do you mean? Team, <laughs> you know, covering a pro team is kind of just a legion of a, a whole – mix of people from all different backgrounds, just even more of a sense coming, you know, being a fan of one team because you're from a certain region or that team meant something to you growing up mm-hmm. and you never really let go of it. Whereas in a college beat, you have, you're in your clan, you know, you're in your house, you're, you're supporting your school and no other school can do anything that your school does. And every other school, if they're better than your school, they're not better than your school. You know, that was the real, the real fun that I really had in covering FSU and being on social media and, and going to UF was, um, was that it was, it was trying to still be myself while also being a service to FSU fans who wanted information, who wanted to know, you know, an inside look at the team, but also, you know, you have to, you know, you kind of have to really look at how the FSU fans, um, have come to be, you know, ever since the nineties, you know, uh, UM is winning a lot of, you know, they, they won five titles as, as all their fans like to remind us of, 
Five um, rings. They all came, you know, <laughs> in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. You know, so those championships came at an early, early stage. Um, and you look at UF and, and their titles came at an early stage too, and they even beat FSU for a national title. So um, I think FSU always had that little brother mentality when it came to especially playing Miami in own conference and um, maybe even playing Florida sometimes too. And that's not to say that FSU didn't get his chance to do its fair share of winning against both teams because they best, definitely did that for sure. Um, but that's that's something that I always like to, to kind of rile up out of the fan base too is because you had a little brother mentality throughout the 90s and the 2000s and then all the way up to 2013 where social media and Twitter was probably at its peak. Mm-hmm. And MSU Twitter came out and they defended their team um, with with no no quips about it. You know, FSU Twitter was loud. It was proud. Yeah, they built um, a reputation really, quick. They built a reputation quick behind that 2013 team. Mm-hmm. Um, also, shout out to Mia Khalifa. Uh, she definitely helped a lot, too. Always. One of my favorite followers shout still out. on Instagram and Twitter, yes. We're doing um, free advertisements but, on here, so might as well... <laughs> You know, but that 2013 team, you know, the winning behind that and the social media uproar that came behind that yeah. um, was great to see. It continued in 14 too. Um, you know, being a UF alum covering FSU was always funny for me because freaking Jimbo always beat my team. I had to deal with that every time. You know, nobody had, nobody ever has to bring that up there. But uh, the Gators always lost to the Knowles when that happened. Um, but it was also too, man, like I always, I had hindsight. You know, I went to UF. Um, beginning in 2016, I was on the five-year plan. I left in 2011. But when I first got to UF, you know, the basketball team won their second title and the football team won in 2006. And I was mm-hmm. there for 2008 when the football team won too. So I saw Tebow and I saw Urban Meyer and I saw that rise and I saw what happens to every great college football program. You know, either a great player leaves or a great coach leaves and the, and the Gators have both happened to them when I was in school there. And then I had to live through Will Muschamp mm-hmm. being the, the nice Gators coach, which wasn't great, as we all know. And Will's bounced around for a couple of jobs, too. But I remember just programs after they win national titles, it takes a long time for teams to really get back over that mountain. Mm-hmm. It's now like how we're all spoiled by seeing a team like Alabama and Nick Saban do this year in and year out, you know. Um, I think, you know, just because LSU won this year doesn't mean they're going to keep winning. You know, sometimes you get one title and sometimes that's it. Sometimes the window closes. Um, sometimes it doesn't open again. I thought that 14 season was probably for FSU. One of the most eye-opening lessons I learned about um, covering a football team, because you saw a team that was pressured into winning and keeping that winning streak going and hearing all the stuff about strength of schedule. And if they gave up one game, would they even be in the national title picture anymore? And that was the first year of the playoffs. And more importantly, too, I just remember after that Oregon game, probably one thing that kind of sticks out to me more than anything covering FSU was after that Oregon game, once my hungover had subsided that Brandon <laughs> talked about earlier this podcast, um, was that post-game press conference and, and seeing Jimbo talk. And it was a cold night that night in L.A. It was like, I want to say, you know, low 50s, but it felt like even colder than that. It was just windy. It was uncharacteristically cold for Southern California. But I remember Jimbo's face being like really red because of how cold it was. And I remember him sitting down and, 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 and giving the press conference and just being, you know, direct with his words. And he, you know, 
he said what he had to say. But when it was all over, the point that really stuck out to me was Jimbo just took a moment, sat back in his chair, had a deep breath, folded up his, his stat sheet, and he took another deep breath and he got up and he walked out of there. And for me, that was just a moment where I realized, like, it was truly a relief for Jimbo Fisher that it was all over. You know, the the, the, mm-hmm. the, the Noles, they felt they felt one game short. But the pressure of trying to repeat that whole season definitely took its toll. And um, just to see the relief, you know, kind of just coming off of Jimbo just with a deep breath really showed how deep they are, were when, how deep the team was in it, how deep they wanted to succeed, and just how much of a toll it really took after, you know, the Jameis allegations came out, after uh, winning close game by close game week after week, after hearing about the strength of schedule stuff, of being the defending champion and not getting the respect of the defending champion, all of that weighed. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was nice to see Jimbo actually be a, be a human and, 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 and be relieved after all of that. Yeah, man, you, uh, you did have good perspective on that on the kind of the fall, like you said, because maybe you were at UF and you had seen it differently. I've spoken on the pod or on some of these podcasts before and said, um, I was able to call out Willie Taggart when I noticed things were going wrong because I held my tongue during the Jimbo Fisher downfall. I started to notice things went wrong, but this was the first beat first team that I had ever covered. Jimbo was the first head coach that I had ever, you know, really closely covered. And he had just come off the national championship. And, and here I was seeing a lot of things that just didn't seem right to me. Cause I had covered FSU starting in 2010 and here we are in like 2015 and 2016. And I didn't really say a lot of the things that I had seen. I, I, I just thought, you know, I was seeing them wrong or I was wrong. I, and when was it, at what point were you pretty sure that uh, things were crumbling around Jimbo? Was it after that press conference or was it a different point? Um, I think it was probably, you know, in the 15, 16 seasons, I think, um, you know, they weren't recruiting how they were leading up to the 2013 season. Um, you know, there was five star after five star. We look back and we look back at those rosters and we saw, you know, all 22 starters from that team were were, were not taken in that fall. They were drafted, okay? They were not signing unfree, uh, undrafted free agent deals. They were all drafted, okay? So the talent pool was definitely shrinking at some point there. Um, and you can credit that to a lot of things, whether it was just having older coaches on staff or mm-hmm. um, Jimbo being too loyal to coaches and not really parting with guys when he probably should have. Um, Jimbo not cutting dead weight off the roster, you know, over a couple of years to really have extra scholarships to go get guys. Um, all those things kind of, you know, played a factor. And to, to, to what you just said right now, new with that team and seeing the signs and, you know, you don't really know what to say or you don't know what to really call out. It, it's funny because when coaches win, they kind of earn a benefit of the doubt, right? And Jimbo had won the ultimate prize and he had won 27 straight games. So it was really, really hard to truly call him out or doubt him on anything he was doing because it seemed like most of it was right. Correct? So yeah. that was probably a big thing for me. And I think I think the, the biggest thing for me when I really saw the table kind of turn for FSU was um, the classes that came in in, 15, in 14 and 15 and 16. Seeing those teams win, you know, those 10 games and getting to the New York Six Bowl, but they couldn't really get over the hump. And I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was – 
you know, those guys celebrated winning the national title, but they weren't never really part of the team that won the national title. You know, they were the team that came after the national title winning team. So they took on the whole spiel of, you know, you know, we have just won 27 games. They try to take on some of their success that the players before them took, but they had no part of, and they thought they were going to have that success um, because solely because they were at FSU and, you know, those guys, that's to me, that was the main reason why the players never really caught on in 15 and 16 and 17 was because the, the players were kind of riding on the fact that they got to FSU. FSU was a great school. They were still top 10, top five every year, but they were riding the high of 13 and seeing the, the things that the teams did before them. And I thought that the players didn't really have proper perspectives on who they were and what they had to do with that, those, that previous title, which was nothing. Um, and that was kind of their downfall. That was probably the biggest thing for me that kind of, I saw happening, especially when Willie Taggart was coming here, because um, the, the you know they they had just won seven seven wins. I think it was seven and six. Mm-hmm. I guess the year Jimbo's last year, and you know every player was kind of before that season. Willie Taggart's first season, every player was. We're not worried about last year. That was last year. We're gonna worry about this year. And it was just like you really got the sense that you know it wasn't just something you tell media off the cuff. It really was. They weren't worried about last year. They really thought they were going to happen. It was going to change and they were going to go back to their winning ways when everybody forgot there was a reason why they were seven and six in the first place. I think one of Willie Tiger's biggest downfalls was he had watched the team during those bowl practices leading up to the independence bowl in Shreveport, Louisiana sidebar. What a great time to be on the beat for me because I got to go to LA, Atlanta, and Miami <laughs> for bowl games. And my last bowl game was in Brendan. Shreveport. Where have you been for bowl games? I have said no Shreveport. I, I have my lines. <laughs> I have my limits. You got to set boundaries. <laughs> if it's but LA, if it's thing. Miami, I'm there. Otherwise, <laughs> Street Vegas, baby. Street Vegas was a little fun, bro. It was a little fun. I remember me and Chris Nee in the casinos. Um, that's a pod for another day. Oh. But, um, I remember the biggest things about, um, you know, Willie Tiger's era kind of starting was, you know, Willie and some of his coaches were watching practice. And nobody really thought to go dip into the O-line pool at the, uh, <laughs> on, the, uh, on the junior college scale and get some O-line bodies in here <laughs> to really help him out and help, you know, guide his offense. That was probably the one big early thing that I noticed that Willie didn't do. And then we all kind of just saw it all unfold after the swag surf and the opener. And um, I had already left Tallahassee. I moved out of town at that point. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, one, Willie's in over his head. I don't think he really, you know, computed how much of a rebuild FSU was at that time. And then, two, I kind of had to laugh because, <laughs> after all, I'm a Gator and FSU fans hate me. So I got some great pleasure in that for sure. But um, <laughs> it really showed a difference. It really showed how far the program had had come from their rise in 2012, winning the title in 2013, the fall in 2014, and then to be really, really down um, when Willie Tiger's first season started. I know you enjoy the troll game and you've clearly separated like what goes in print and what's published from like what you put on Twitter, which I think is the main thing, Safid. But are there any moments or examples like during your time covering FSU where you're like, ah, maybe that was a little bit too far? Or are you completely cool with 
with everything you ever put out on social media as a uh, as a Gator alum? I mean, sometimes there was like a little too much sensitivity coming back at what I had posted that I even just went to go ahead and just delete a post. Um, I think it was one probably like I think FSC started like 0-4 or something. Or not, they didn't start 0-4, but it was like on their way to the fourth loss. And I was just like, man, I'm glad I left Tallahassee. And I remember just like, I remember somebody, you know, I remember just a bunch of fans just coming on, coming on me. I even remember like one FSU player was like, if you ever want to come to Tallahassee, I'm going to make sure you never come back. Who was the player? Like, I I have no idea, bro. Mm -hmm. Some, some bomb probably, but I was just like, man, you would really do that for me. If I want, if I didn't come back, you would make sure I wouldn't come back. You would really do that for me. I would be so gracious if you could do that for me. So I don't ever have to come back. Um, so I remember that going probably a little too far and I was like, all right, let me lay you off a bit. But, um, at the certain time too, I mean, like during the tiger year, it was just kind of hard to, you know, it was kind of, I don't want to say beneath me, but it was kind of hard to kind of kick a dead horse there because everything was kind of, it really changed. It really changed, man. It really changed. Um, it wasn't as great because FSU fans became so proud in 13 and 14. And that was great to be a part of too on social media and to cover the team. Um, it was great to, you know, be a part of a fan base that was rabid and, 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 and wanted information and wanted to know everything and wanted to be in it and felt like they were part of the team just as much as, you know, the third string um, linebacker and stuff like that. You know, it was, it was really great to be a part of. And I really enjoyed my time covering FSU. It was, you know, the lessons, a lot of lessons I learned today, um, most of them were really from covering FSU and, and, and navigating the fan base on Twitter and, and learning how to kind of just be myself, honestly. I really felt... I want to say, yeah, I'll use your podcast and I'll say thank you to all the FSU fans who uh, who fell who fell to my trolls, who uh, who were probably hurt along the way, who still have me blocked on social media, who would like to you know tweet my name, you know, and hopefully I wouldn't see it. That was probably one of my favorite things too on, on covering FSU was I left a little column open just to see what people would say about me. Um, because they wouldn't have the heart to at me and just directly put it towards me and make it in my intention. Um, but FSU really taught me how to really handle myself as a reporter, how to learn, how to deal with, you know, a fan base. And I don't think there's any other fan base, um, in the country, um, that is as excited about their team and wants to see their team do as well, um, as a university of Florida fan base, (laughs) because go Gators. (laughs) <laughs> the misdirection there. Uh, uh, get this guy out of here. You know what? You know, I was trying to give him a platform and have a little fun with the troll, and he's taking it too damn far. He's taking it too far. I, Stop. I, I, I had I had a little fun. I had a little fun. What do you what do you, what do you want me to do? I think I gave you guys some good info there. I thought, you know, I really wanted to. I didn't want to troll that hard. I mean, the last part was 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 just me and my nature there. But um, I think you know this. I think this pod. I think yeah, it helped my whole spiel there. But I think this pod is really great for you guys to kind of reach out to old old members of the beat, especially during one of the greatest times of the beat, to kind of get everybody's perspective on how everything kind of unfolded, you know, at FSU. And I think one thing, let me part with before you guys kick me out here. And I think, I think one part that kind of gets understated about FSU and what kind of led up to um, the rise in the fall in thirteen and fourteen, and and what led up to Jimbo ultimately leaving. Um, for that bag, because man, he got paid and he suckered A and M out of a huge deal, um, and he will be cashing those checks for the next what seven, eight years now. But I think the real big thing that nobody really kind of talks about was, you know, 
Jimbo won the title in 13, and it was probably the happiest moment for him professionally on the field. Um, but personally, I think we all know what happened with, you know, the divorce, you know, with him and his wife, Candy. Um, that was probably the most um, personal thing that was not the best joy for him in his life. So you had the real dichotomy of him being successful and reaching his ultimate goal as a coach on the field, winning a title, and then him off the field where his, you know, personal life was kind of in shambles. And I thought that really played a huge role in how everything kind of unfolded for um, Jimbo at FSU specifically, because when it came time to negotiating with LSU, negotiating with Texas A&M, and that happened year after year after year, um, you kind of sense that Jimbo already had one foot out the door. And you kind of sense that Jimbo was kind of ready to move on already. And, um, you know, kudos to him. He got a 10-year deal from A&M. He got that bag. He got a really ridiculously large contract to continue coaching football. Um, I don't think Jimbo's going to last that whole contract. Um, that buyout is, is, is too steep for A&M to really do whenever that time does come. I think Jimbo's next step would be, like, you know, maybe as a TV um, doing more TV stuff. He's actually really, really great at that when he was doing that um, during times when FSU wasn't, you know, playing deep into the playoff and stuff like that. But um, I think that's probably the most important thing that people don't know about the FSU, um, you know, rise and fall during that time was it was Jimbo's happiest moment on the career on the field. And it was his most unhappy off of it. And that really had a lot to do with how his chapter at FSU ended. I don't even know how to do. We had a perfect ending spot with you doing your troll and we were going to go. And now you've brought it to where we should like to end on a high note, talking about the lowest point in a man's life and divorce. And obviously, uh, Josh, so this how is do, what you do, Brendan. How this do we end it? What you do, right? You take your podcast and you listen to the recording and then you cut this piece, right? That, 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 that <laughs> and then you move it over. One little just section. what Brendan Nobody wants has to, hear. to know what it really was. Yeah, just cut no, like five so minutes of it. Uh, three minute clip. You move it around. Nobody knows what's going on here, dude. You sound just like me. I always tell Brendan how to edit the pod. <laughs> no big deal, right, Brendan? Yeah, yeah. No For the guys deal. who never have to edit anything, just telling me how easy it is. <laughs> so I'm always like, Brendan, just clip here, clip here, throw that out, move this here. No big deal. Just go do it. <laughs> Josh, tell Soft about Definitely. my melt my meltdown like three weeks ago. You thought he ago. lost all this audio and he was um, ready to quit his job, or I think you did quit your job in the group chat. And I was like, "Hold on, Brendan, let me uh, let me go take a look." So I, I I go and it was messed up. It was real choppy. I spent like two hours and I gave him all the edit points where everything needed to be clipped and tied together, and the pod was salvageable, and we were going to be ready to run it because Brendan said he quit and like gave up. So in the group chat, I'm like, all right, Brandon, I got your edit points. Uh, here you go. And he goes, Oh, I already got all the edit points. I'm good. I, I just needed a breath. <laughs> I'm like, you, like, I, I literally sat there for two straight hours because I felt for him. Like, I, I know it sucks when you lose audio and stuff, mm -hmm. but he just got emotional in the group chat, quit his job. So I'm like, Oh, let me pick up the pieces. And little did I know, he just took a deep breath and went right back to work. So him and I basically sat side by side doing the same edit points. <laughs> just uh, such a typical Brendan story. He was working on it the whole entire time, trying to regroup yeah. it. Because this is what Brendan does. He gets a little rattled. Then he takes a deep breath. Then he regroups. Yeah. Then he has a little shot of whiskey. And then he gets and right back great. on the horse. Yeah, and he's ready to go. <laughs> Damn, Brendan Simone.
Safed, who is your favorite beat member before we let you go and the FSU beat? Outside of Brendan? Yes! My favorite beat member? Um, it had to be Corey, man. It had to really? be Corey. I worked with Corey. Yeah, but, you know, more than anything, man, Corey has this incredible voice um, that you hear. You hear his voice when you read his columns. Oh, for sure. And that's, really, that's, that's really hard. It's also really creepy, but it's also really <laughs> hard to do as a writer. Um, it's really hard to do as a writer, and that's something that, you know, it's kind of cool to see how writers really find their way and, and find their voice. Brendan, you definitely helped me do that while I was at FSU. Um, I did felt like I didn't have that my first year, maybe in my first two years until I finally did. Um, and it was kind of cool to see how, you know, Corey does have that, have that, um, have that time with the fan base and people know him from his podcast and things that he does. Um, but yeah, how his voice kind of come through in his work. That was probably one of the reasons why he was my second favorite to, to you, Brendan. Sorry, new. Uh, it's all good. I, I'm I'm not really a beat writer, so I didn't think you were gonna pick me. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to get Corey on the podcast, Josh, for this Meet the Beat series? <sighs> yeah, Safid, uh, do you think <laughs> that we will before this is over? And as you're on, so you know we're getting down to the bottom of the barrel. But do you think that we'll get any of the War Chant people on? Because so far we're over two. I've this I've sent funny. out text messages. This is funny, man. This is funny for me because I felt like just me mentioning them, I was kind of going over a line there. You know, no, you, guys, they you guys, you guys in your outlets, you guys in your FSU outlets, you're just so, you're sensitive just like the FSU fans, man. <laughs> no, we're not. Look, I think yes, it'd be, I'd love, get, uh, I'd love to even get Gene Williams on. I mean, all right. All right. For On the Bench, <laughs> this is Brendan Sano. Thanks for Safed Deed for joining us. Thanks to Josh Newbert for stirring the pot as well. I got two stirring pot, mother. <laughs> Bye guys. Say it. Right. Say it. See it. it. How'd you feel about that one? That was the most anxiety-provoking interview we've done on the series, and probably any of the Meet the Coaches series, the Meet the Beat series. Because I just felt like it could have gone out. Like I felt like it was going to spiral out of control at any given time with the two of you. Uh, yeah, he talked a lot. I didn't. I barely talked. No, I I know, but I feel like you're both very similar. You and Safi yeah. are. Very similar. Oh, yeah, I could have gotten more into like who who didn't you like and kind of poked and prodded on some of the beefs on the. I was going to get into that stuff, but it was it was going long. One thing I'll say, and I do want to get your thoughts on this, Josh, is that like I mentioned to Safed, was that like, I, I don't think that there was there was a clear line of delineation of like he would troll on Twitter, but I thought like his writing was fair and objective when I would read it. Like uh, he would sometimes miss some nuance like with the game neighbors thing himself like he mentioned but i don't think there was ever like this intentional like i'm using the the pen is mightier than the sword and i'm going to take down fsu because i went to uf i get the sum as like a ucf grad who's proud of like the school i went to and enjoy the like minimal football success my, my programs ever had why do you think there's some people i know it's not all but some who equate fairness and objectivity to like you having to be one of us. Like you're, you went to FSU, Josh. And I think that mm. buys you inherent credibility that I, mm. I definitely do think it, it there's times where going to having graduated from FSU has definitely <laughs> helped me in times where I've been critical of Florida state and people kind of turn to me and say, cause like Safid said, Covering Florida State, covering college football is more tribal to the fans 
there's there's a more of an emotional connection, probably because our our time and money went to these schools. So sometimes fans will go to discredit me by saying that I went to UF. Um, that's a very frequent thing because my cousin Jamie went to UF. So for the first 10 years I was in this business, I was always labeled. Anytime I'd say something against FSU, FSU fans would come out and say that I went to UF. And when I can pull that card out and say, oh, actually, I did not. I graduated from Florida State. It, for some reason, you know, gives me more validity in some of my takes and stuff. Um, but you know, your so, takes don't change. You know what I mean? Like your takes don't right. change whether you went to UF or FSU. But the way like, that they're perceived, for some for reason, sure. it, it impacts it. It definitely it's, does. It's, <laughs> it's weird, but. And I'll give Safed credit to the like Ira Shofa went to UF and I, and Ira's such a buttoned up professional. I said buttoned up. I always say that on the podcast, uh, but he is such a pros pro. Like, I don't know if a lot of people realize that and he'll talk about it and kind of gets glossed over. Uh, Safed leaned into it and went full heel and like it or love it. Like I enjoyed the anarchy from like, that's not what I would do. I couldn't live that life. I'd be too stressed out, but he, man, this is a consistent thing with everyone we've had on people find their niches on this beat and, yeah, he's mm-hmm. moved up, moved up professionally uh, to cover a pro team because of it. He's actually asking me to edit out some of the podcast right now. I'm getting that's the messages. that's the cool part about the series is, and I said it in the beginning. We're gonna find everybody claims their own lane, or everybody plays plays a different role when covering the beat. And that's for two reasons. One, it's a business thing. You you got to differentiate from the competition. But two, we all have different personalities, and if you just be yourself you're going to, you're going to fall into a lane. Um, I said, I could relate with Safit on a lot of things, but the way he goes about things, the way I go about things are different. Um, but at the end of the day, we both do, we both evoke a lot of emotion. Anytime we, we put something out, um, it kind of makes ripples. And, and I always enjoyed the way Safid went about his work. It might not been for me, but I had a lot of respect for, you know, the way he covered Florida State during that time. All right. So we got a bunch of five star reviews the other day because you requested them. And yeah, we got like three or four quick ones and actually like comments. And then there's more five stars rolled in Uh, the polarizing part of those comments on iTunes. And we appreciate those were the intro music. Some love it. Some hate it. Shocking. Uh, How many one star reviews are we going to get for having Soffit on? None. I think it was a good interview. Even if you don't like him, you at least got some insight into how and why he did the things that he did. I agree. I hopefully people, if you've listened to this point, you learned something. We're not campaigning for him, really. Like, we're not saying Safed was the best beat writer on the beat. And, you know, I I just with a lot of things that he wrote, but I still could respect the way, you know, in the things that he did. He wasn't even the best beat writer to come from the Orlando Sentinel in the late 2010s. That was me. You didn't say it to his face when he was on the pod. No, I didn't. I just remembered it now. So, all right. <laughs> for Josh Newberg, I'm Brendan Sedone. I want to thank Safed for joining us on the bench. Uh, we'll continue our Meet the Beat series probably next week. But anyways, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for being open-minded if you did listen this far and giving someone who probably annoyed you at some point another a chance. Uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys later. Stick in the landing. <laughs>